Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. We're going to get into some stuff. Uh, I, had a, I had an art history class in college. I had two art history classes, and they always have it at 2 o'clock, and it was in a big auditorium with the lights off looking at slides, and I fell asleep in every class ever, five to ten minutes every time. So I'm expecting some sleepy eyes. I try not to call you out, but I see you sitting in the back. I know that's going to happen. Um, you need to make sure that you're seeing this and that at some point. If you can't, there's lots of spots up here and come closer, but I get it. Okay, so, great, let's get going. This, uh, I have a show called Say Yes, A Liturgy of Not Giving Up on Ourselves. Uh, it is 90 minutes long, interactive with three different acts. This is a condensed version. I would have done the whole thing. Usually at Jubilee, like this second session goes right into dinner, but this one goes into the session, so we have to keep it short. So there's no crowd interaction, there's no karaoke, there's something else, uh, and there's no third act. So if you want to know those things, I can tell you later on, but we're still going to get into some good stuff. So let's get started. Any questions? Great. Okay, let's do it. Okay. I went to college. I lived in a house with four other guys. Uh, we all graduated college, got married, we have kids. There are more kids than there are adults right now. And we see each other a few times a year, we live in different spots, but every January, just like two weeks ago, we get rid of our kids. We rent a cabin in Washington State where they filmed the Twilight series. And we spend a weekend together. We go on hikes together, cook meals together, play games together. It's really fun. On Saturday night, we take the tables in the house and make a really long table. We cook a meal and we sit around the table and eat together and we ask each other two questions. We say, what was your best moment of the year? And what was your worst moment in the last year? This particular year, my best moment of the year was taking my then young children to Disneyland, which I know is completely cliche, because look, if you have kids, or you'd like to have kids one day and be a parent one day, what you'd like to think is that your kids' favorite memories are going to be with you, like playing ball with dad in the backyard, camping with my parents, there's Sunday night meals, and no, there's no way this billion dollar company is going to let those memories be with you. It's going to be at their theme parks, with their characters, and it's amazing. Like, take my money, please. It's so much fun. Maybe you've gone to Disneyland recently without little kids, and you're like, yeah, I don't know. There's just lots of strollers around. That is true. But when you go with little children, it really is magical. It's so much fun. Like, I was depressed for three days when I left because I had such a good time. Okay? So that was my best moment that particular year. Now, what was your worst moment in the last year? Maybe you can take a second to think, what was your worst moment last year? This particular moment, this particular year, my worst moment in that last year happened on a toilet. Now, it did not involve my bowels, but it did take place on a toilet. So my wife and I rented this kind of quirky house, and I put my kids to bed, and I walked out into the living room, and I noticed that I was crying. Not because we had a particular exciting bedtime story, but like I was crying and I couldn't stop myself from crying. And so I made my way to our only bathroom, which was just off the kitchen, this little tiny bathroom, and I sat on the toilet and I cried. I wept for an hour. Like my wife found me and she was like, oh my God, are you okay? And I was like, I She's like, do you want to talk about it? And I was like, my tears are me talking about it. I don't know what's happening to me right now. And with some time and reflection, I realized that what was happening to me is that a dream was dying, that I had had some dream for a really, really long time. And somehow, psychologically and physically, my body knew that it wasn't going to come true. And I was grieving the loss and death of a dream. 
And I'll tell you a little bit later on what that dream was, but it would behoove us as a crowd to ask, what is a dream? Because when we use the word dream, a dream can mean lots of different things, right? A dream can be like the series of images that go on in your head at night as your mind's unloading the day before you go to bed. Or a dream can be like a house on a street of dreams or some kind of object or thing that you'd like to get in the world. Or for a lot of us, when we hear the word dream, we just simply think of Ryan Gosling, because that man <laughs> is a dream. <laughs> and maybe you don't think so, but he was in one of your dreams one time, you know? I like that he was my dad in this dream. Sure, there's something to figure out with a psychologist. Great. But if you were to look in the dictionary, which is the book about how we use words in our context right now, a dream means a cherished desire. And uh-oh, I just used a sexy word, desire. Mmm. Desire is a sexy word. Desire is a sexy word because desire means you want something. You want something. And I'd like to submit to you that what you want is not some kind of thing or object or place to be. But what you want is to be the kind of person who can get to that place, who can get to that thing, who can get to that place to be. And look, I'm no psychologist or sociologist, anthropologist, or any kind of gist, really. But I think generationally, we've all been pitched different ways to become the people that we'd like to be. I think for my, for my parents' generation, probably your grandparents' generation, uh, they got pitched materialism, like, really hard. It was, like, post-war. Like, that's still happening nowadays, but it was, like, post-war, you know, lots of money, lots of advertising, things like that. And the whole thing was like, get the house, get the color TV, get the car, get the things, get the box meals, get, the, get, all these, get all these things, get all of these things. And when you finally get all the things, you'll become the up and standing citizen that we all hoped you'd be. Like, who are all these RVs for anyways, right? Like, are they really for, they're not for my generation. I come right at the end of Generation X. And so we saw our parents be miserable and get divorced. So we knew that didn't work. But what we were told is like, hey, your lives are going to be kind of simple, okay? They're going to, the 60s already happened, so calm down, right? They're going to be kind of normal. But there may be this moment in your life when this outside force, this alien presence is going to come into your boring, mundane life and pull you out into the significance and adventure you always hoped for. This is all the movies, right? Back to the Future, Star Wars, E.T., all these movies. Who's the celebrity Gen Xer trying to take us to space to find the aliens? It's Elon Musk. That's what he's really trying to do. And then for those of you who are younger than me, which is most of you, you're really screwed. Because what you were told over and over again is that the place that you were going to find yourself is going to be on a stage with a band, because that lasts forever. And um, look, you do find a certain part of yourself on a stage, but you might also find parts of yourself you're like, ooh, I didn't know that one was in there. Yeah. You know, I wonder that. And guess what? In every generation, the dream dies. Because a dream is something usually that you, when you're younger, you see in somebody else and you're like, I want to be like them one day. And guess what? You can never become somebody else. You can only become yourself. And so the dream dies. And this, this is when the voice of giving up comes to us. This is when the voice of giving up comes to us. So... When we deal with voices or fears or these very ethereal things, it's very helpful to do this exercise. Give it a personality. Give it a name. Because when we talk about these vague things, it's really hard to pinpoint. But if you give it a name and a personality, put some clothes on it, then you can deal with it. So I want to do that with the voice of giving up. And we're going to run that through the filter of the movie Jurassic Part 2, The Lost World. Now, I'm not talking about Jurassic World with Chris Pratt and all that jazz. I'm talking about Jurassic Park. I'm talking about Jeff Goldblum, Lord Dern, Sam... What's his face, right? Yeah, I'm talking about written by Michael Crichton, directed by Steven Spielberg, 
We saw dinosaurs on the big screen that looked real, and it changed our lives. It filled us with wonder and joy, and Hollywood made billions of dollars. And then they were like, let's do it again. So they made a second movie, and it's not as good. Now, I wasn't there for the production meeting, but I'm pretty sure this is what was written on the whiteboard, which is, okay, we've got dinosaurs eating people on an island. How do we get to dinosaurs eating people in Southern California? And that's pretty much the plot of the movie. And look, that's kind of what Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was, too. You know, it's like... And look, Steven Spielberg directed it, and he's given us many cinematic magical moments in our lifetime, but how he solves this problem in the movie is complete garbage, and we should not let him get away with it. But I can keep going, but let's move on. So, there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex walking around San Diego. It's thirsty, there's lots of swimming pools, you get it. Okay, here's what the voice of giving up is like. You're in your bed at night, and you're like, you know what? I've always had this dream. I've always had this thing I've wanted to do in my life. I'm going to start tomorrow. I'm going to get up early and start tomorrow on that dream. And then this overwhelming presence comes into your bedroom, looks you deep in the soul and goes, uh-uh, give up. That's what the voice of giving up is like. So for the rest of this presentation, we're going to refer to it as the Tyrannosaurus Rex of giving up. Now, I've listened to the T-Rex of giving up. I've listened to its arguments. It has very convincing arguments. And if I was to sum up the things it says to me most, there's about three things it says to me most. First, the first thing it says to me, it says, nothing's going to change. Hey, this miserable moment that you're in, this miserable day you're having, guess what? This is every day for the rest of your life. It's never going to get better. It's never going to change, and there's nothing you can do about it. And thinking about doing misery for the rest of your life sounds completely uninviting. The next thing it says, it says, you suck and are ugly. It gets really personal for some reason, like knocks you to the ground, kicks you while you're down there. But what it's saying is like, there's a path of success that you would like to walk, and guess what? You don't have what it takes to get there. You don't have what it takes to finish that path of success, and there's something wrong with you that you're not in charge of that's always gonna keep you from getting there. And then the last thing it says, it says dying is better than living. Look, if we're gonna start talking about dying, we need to understand that dying comes on a spectrum, all right? Because you can binge watch something every single day and not deal with the conversation you know you need to have. You can, op you can open a bottle or tap your phone endlessly to numb the pain that keeps calling your name day after day after day. And yeah, you can go all the way to the end and go, I just don't even want to be here anymore. Now, the thing about this room and the thing about this spectrum is that there are people in this room, or at least we know somebody, Sorry, it's probably my wife calling me. She's not stop. Yeah, okay. Uh, there are people in this room where we know somebody who's gone through some kind of death and come out on the other side and been able to tell us if there's anything there for us. Like, I had a friend who was addicted to video games, which probably 10% of you guys here are too. Um, and he was playing games. It was ruining his marriage. Like, his wife was going to leave him. It was such a bad problem. And she's like, he was like, I just wish she was overreacting, right? And so one night, she's in bed. And he's like, well, whatever. I'm just going to play. I'm just playing for a little bit. What's the big deal? So he's playing games, and then he looks out the window, and the sun is coming up. He played games all night long. And he realized what he was doing, and he went, he picked up his Xbox, and he took it outside, he threw it on the ground, and he stomped it into pieces, and he's like, I went and got help. Turns out, I had a lot of trauma I didn't want to deal with, and I was just distracting myself. I was numbing the pain. So I had a friend who went through a certain kind of death, came through and said, no, nah, man, there's nothing for you there. It's just distraction. Just distracting yourself. So we know somebody, or we are somebody, who's gone through some kind of difficult death, and come out on the other side and said, hey, what's there for us? But this last one, this ultimate death, 
Is there anybody here, or do we even know? Are there any people around who've actually gone all the way and been able to come back and say, is there anything for you in that decision? But there are those people in the world. So since the creation of the Golden Gate Bridge, around 2,000 people have jumped off of it to take their own life. Right now, there are 19 living survivors from that fall to the ocean. One guy named Kevin Hines, look, he had a tough go. Grew up, he was orphaned really young, grew up in a bad foster care family, had a lot of undiagnosed mental health issues. And he came to the conclusion that nobody wanted him and he didn't want to be here either. So he went to this bridge, he jumped off of it. He has this experience falling to the ocean that we'll come back to in a second. He hits the water, he lives. The Coast Guard picks him up. They're like, you're a miracle. You don't understand how many bodies we pull out of here every week. None of them are ever alive. Look, he broke a lot of bones. He was puffy for a long time. It took him a while to get out of the hospital, but when he was well enough to leave the hospital, he went around and he interviewed all the other 18 living survivors about their journey to the ocean, and they all said the same thing, which in his words was this. The millisecond my hands left the rail, it was an instant regret. Everything that I thought was unchangeable about my life was completely changeable. The only thing that was really unchangeable in this moment was falling to the ocean. So if we're in that conversation, or we know somebody is, can we just make Kevin our friend? Our friend who's gone all the way and said, no, there's nothing for you there either. But what do we do when our dreams die? Because to dream is to desire, and to desire is to want to be here. And if you don't want to be here, then being here can be really, really it can be really hard. So, this is often the place that religion comes in. And religion has a really interesting pitch. You've heard it before. It says something like this. Hey! I see that you have this hole in your heart. And you keep trying to fill it with the rectangle of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it doesn't fit in there. No, it doesn't. You keep trying to put the triangle of fame and celebrity and Instagram likes, and it doesn't fit it either. No, because the only thing that can is the circle of God, and when you put it in there, it will fill you and complete, and we make the divine a product. Now, the only problem is when you make something a product, when that product stops working, you get rid of it. Like, this toothpaste didn't whiten my teeth. This weed killer didn't kill my weeds. This God let my dreams die, and you walk away. The other problem with that argument is that it presupposes that the giver of your existence hasn't already been involved in your life already. Like, what if the giver of your existence is the one that let the dream die, or led you to this place at least, because the dream was in the way of a deeper conversation? We call this guy now St. Ignatius of Loyola. He's dead, but he was alive in the 1500s. A rascally guy, good with a sword, in lots of battles. He was Spanish, they were fighting the French one time, and he's doing his thing, and then BOOM! He's hitting the leg with a cannonball, like he did back then. And he has to go to the hospital for a year to recover. And the hospital didn't have an awesome library. No, they just had the stories of saints and the holy scriptures, and he read them. And over this year of reading these stories, he had this transformation, so much so, when he was well enough to walk, he gathered his armor and his sword and all his clothing, and he walked 
to the nearest monastery. And he laid it at the feet of the monks and he said, I renounce my ways as a warrior. I want to spend the rest of my life serving God. This is the man who founded the Jesuits, if you've ever heard of them. He also developed this thing called spiritual practices. And in his teachings, he said, actually, you know the way that God speaks the loudest about your life, about your purpose, your calling, your vocation? It's through your desires. Uh-oh, that sexy, sexy word. But that takes discernment. Because our desires lead us to, yeah, our greatest moments of flourishing, but they can lead us to our greatest moments of destruction as well. We've all seen the desire of wealth being lived out in somebody, and somebody is open and generous and the best version of themselves. And then also the desire of wealth has led people to be closed off and greedy and the worst version of themselves. Two people can desire one another physically, relationally, sexually, emotionally. They need to discern if they're being invited into what it's going to take to make the vocation of a relationship work. You might have a desire for a certain kind of occupation. You need to discern uh, what it's going to take if you're willing to commit to the skill and training and commitment of time to make that vocation a reality. A dream died in me, but I saw that there was a deeper desire still there. And I looked at the Tyrannosaurus Rex of giving up, and I was like, why are you standing in my way? Why are you arguing with me? Why are you preventing me from moving forward? And I thought, maybe these are the arguments I need to walk through. Maybe these are the doorways that I'm being invited into. So I'm going to tell you for the rest of this time what I found by walking into these doorways, these arguments. But guess what? We're not going to do it in a trap way. No, we're going to do it in an artistic way. With a lot of dress going to change, friends, on a hot summer day in Portland, Oregon. Uh, my wife took our kids to the Portland Zoo, a delightful place with caged animals, caged parents, and wild and free kids. You should go. It's probably the same as the zoo here. Yeah. And so they're walking around the zoo, and uh, they get to the lion pen. It's in the afternoon. So usually they're all on this big rock uh, hanging out, but they were down in the shade taking naps next to these floor-to-ceiling windows. It's actually really cool. It's like, uh, it's like, Animal, or like adults and kids can get really close to these big sleeping cats. It's like being in Narnia, but with six inches of plexiglass, okay? And so, um, no, nobody, none of you have read Narnia stuff. So. Okay, uh, so, uh, my wife is there with our kids looking at these lines, and she's standing next to another mom and her kids, and she overhears this little boy ask his mommy, Mommy, why don't these lions have manes? And this adult woman says to this innocent child, well, honey, these lions don't have manes because um, it's hot out, and they shave the lion's manes to keep them cool in the summertime. Yeah. Hold on, yes. So, you know, but it sounds like 95% of this room doesn't know if that's true or not. Friends, lions come from Africa. They live in the Serengeti. There's no way that evolutionary headscarf is going to prevent them from surviving a tepid Pacific Northwest summer day. My wife leans over, mom to mom, and is like, oh, hey, these lions are female. They don't grow maids. And she's like, oh, thank you, thank you. And didn't tell the child. Like, hopefully he overheard that, right? Because what... When has your knowledge of lion's manes been ever been tested until just seconds ago, right? That mom statement could have remained in that little boy for years unchecked. 
well, you know, adolescents, teenagers, well into college. I can imagine a scenario. He's on campus, sees a girl he fancies. What's a fun first date that's consensual and you can get to know one another? Go to the zoo! You talk about giraffes, you eat a pretzel, it's great! He asks her out, she says yes. They go up, they walk around. You know when you're getting to know somebody, every seven minutes there's that lull in conversation, that really awkward pause, right? And so he's going in the Rolodex in his head, he's like, what do I know about animals? The first time it happens at the penguin park, he's like, ah, cool, penguins, what do I know about penguins? Oh, I saw Happy Feet one time. Hey, do you know penguins like dancing? You know, something like that. <laughs> and so the date's going well, he's hoping for a second date, they get to the lion pen, and then there's that lull. And he's like, oh, what do I know about lions? Oh, my mom told me something one time. Hey, do you know that lions, blah, 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 blah. Do you understand my wife saved this little boy's future sex life? Do you get it? Do you get it? She's like a time-traveling matchmaker, like, no, I want you to be married one day, right? Like, they toasted her at their wedding. Do you get what's happening in this moment? Yeah. Because right now, look, we know a lot of things. We know a lot of things right now. We're in an age of knowing. There's maybe some things that we should look at and go, is that true or not? You know, especially what our parents told us. But we know lots of things. Like, and there's so much to know. Right now there's 5,000 books being published every single day. There's more information written in a New York Times Sunday paper than was ever recorded in the ancient world. Like, there's a lot to know. And in fact, we kind of forget what we know, right? Like, I can just simply ask somebody in this room, like, describe the digestive system. Is that next? No, okay. I can ask somebody in this room, describe the digestive system, and you guys would probably all have a pretty good idea. We know we have an epiglottis that keeps it from going down our windpipe. We have an esophagus, a stomach, the acids break the food down, goes into your small intestines, removes the nutrients, put it in your bloodstream, and then, you know, the other intestines and the poops you. We all kind of know that, right, from basic biology. But at a certain time in history, if you would have put us all back in time, this would be a room of wizards. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, we used to bleed colds out of people or cast demons out of people having seizures. Like, we've come a long ways in our knowledge of medicine. So when we hear a statement like, nothing's ever going to change, we're often going, well, what else don't I know? i got to know more. i got to go to a seminar. i got to read more books. i got to know more. And that's not it because nothing's ever going to change. It's not a knowing problem. It's a narrative problem. It's not about what you know, it's about how you know what you know. The famous psychotherapist said this, Carl Jung, he said, until we make the unconscious conscious, oh, it'll direct your life and you'll call it fate. He also said you could say fate to substitute God. It'll direct your life and you'll call it God. Which we talked about this more at Julie. Okay, but yes, we are narrative making machines. Right now, our five senses are taking in way more information than we could ever possibly know or imagine. And what our brains are doing is they're synthesizing all of that information and they're creating a simple narrative. And that narrative is mostly, am I safe or not? Am I safe or not? That's the biggest driving narrative in your life right now. Uh, it's happening all the time, whether you recognize it or not. Like when you walked into this room, if you came early, you heard some delightful music, you know, you're used to a room like this, you saw some chairs, some people, some lights, so you're like, probably didn't even think about it, but you're like, I'm fine. But if you would have walked in, opened the doors, and you saw a pack of wild wolves consuming a caribou carcass up here, you'd go, I'm not getting eaten alive today, you know, and you'd walk away. You almost don't even have to think about it. It's always a narrative. So we have those narratives. Am I safe or not? We also have these other narratives happening all the time. And this is what they sound like. They say, this is who I am. This is what I'm capable of doing. And this is how my life is going to turn out. And those narratives are a bit more insidious because they developed by how we learn to survive in the world as children. They came to us by how adults and our parents treated us. 
And they were working all the time, too. I found myself at a point in my life where I had some bad narratives. I was saying some mean and destructive things to myself. And I was working with some friends and the therapists who were like, hey, pay attention to what you say to yourself. Look at your self-talk. Pay attention to what you say to yourself. That's what I was. I was writing that stuff down and I was looking at it. But I was like, are there ever moments when we don't have narratives? Are there ever moments where the narrative goes away? And there are. And we call these moments, moments of wonder. Wonder. Have you ever been to a concert? You just did today. What's a concert? Some human beings, some instruments, lights, electricity, you know, fog machines, a venue, an audience, right? And all of those things are working together, all of those elements. But there's always a moment in the concert where the elements themselves seem to transcend the elements. And you're there. And you're like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm glad I'm here, right? And you're nowhere else. You're just right here. And you're filled with wonder. Or like, I surf, you know, sometimes. I have small children. It's hard to get away. But like, <laughs> surfing's amazing because, or going into nature of some kind. But surfing's amazing because the surface is literally moving. There's animals below and above. There's weather systems unfolding all around you. There's tides happening because of an orbiting planet. All of that is happening. You're mostly trying not to drown. It's only when, really when you get past the breakers and you have a moment to sit on your board and catch your breath. If you're paying attention, you'll look around and you'll see all of this unfolding and you go, I am so small in everything that's happening and you'll be filled I met and married my wife in Seattle, Washington. Well, she married me too. So uh, we were met in Seattle, and we lived there for a while, and then I got offered an artisan residency in Texas. And when people want to pay you money to make art, you take it. So we drove our moving stuff, we drove our moving truck down to um, Texas, and we did a sightseeing tour. So the first place we stopped was a place called Craters of the Moon National Park. It's in Idaho. I'd never heard of it before, but um, thousands of years ago, this volcano blew up, lock, rock, lava rock went everywhere, there's not a lot of vegetation, so it looks like the surface of the moon. It's also one of the least light-polluted places in the U.S. So we were camping, and people were like, oh, you're going to camp? you got to stay up and look at the stars. The stars are amazing here. We're like, okay, we will. And they're like, no, you got to stay up. you got to stay up and look at the stars. They're like, fine, we will. And you're like, okay. And then we like shared a bottle of wine, and we're like, we're tired. So we went to bed. It was like midnight. We're like, cool, great, stars. See them before. Went to bed. 4.30 in the morning. My wife nudges me and she's like, hey, I gotta pee. And I was like, I do too. Let's walk to the bathrooms together. So I unzipped the tent and it was this! It was this! I've grown up in cities my whole life where there's a standard 16 stars out every night. This is what the night sky looks like when you live where there's no lights. And I was filled with wonder. I mean, pee too. I went to the bathroom and then I stood there and filled with wonder at the beauty of it all. And what is the common denominator between the stars and the concert, nature, surfing? The common denominator is you. You're the common denominator. Because wonder is not an exterior destination. Wonder is an interior filter you learn to see life through. It's most easily accessed to us in new situations. Because we don't have a narrative about it. Have you ever, like, you know, taken time to, like, travel somewhere, like, backpack Europe or something? You know, you get off the train and you're like, oh, my, this is the most beautiful city I've ever seen in my life. And then day three, you're like, I'm so bored. Let's get back on the train. Right? What's happened? Has the city changed? No. You got familiar with it. You developed a narrative about it. And familiarity kills wonder. Familiarity is a helpful tool. 
It's helpful to say some friends visiting, they're sleeping in your living room, you gotta get to the kitchen, but you don't wanna turn on the lights to wake them up, but you know how to navigate all the furniture in the dark without stubbing your toe. You know, that's helpful. Familiarity is not helpful when you're married a long time and you get bored with your spouse. Familiarity is not helpful when you're in your body every day and you're like, nothing's gonna change, it can never get better, there's nothing I can do. So we should go to We should go to We should look at the stars, all those things. But we also got jobs and school and responsibilities. And I was like, is there like a daily hack, like a little practice I can do to access this filter better? And there is. I do it every day. And I'm going to share it with you. Before we do that, though, we've got to look at some art to see what's going on. So there's this great painter named Scott Lisfield, and he makes these delightful paintings of this astronaut walking around our world. Now, there's no other people in any of these paintings. And because there's no other people in these paintings, just the astronauts, we begin to take the perspective of the astronaut, of the visitor. We look at all these things that we've seen before, and we're like, yeah, what are these things? Where did all this stuff come from? What is this magical place in Southern California that promises joy inside of you, right? Because we don't have narratives about it, we see everything from the perspective of not knowing. And when you unknow the narrative, the doorway of wonder will open up. Unknowing is opens up the doorway of wonder. And so what I propose to you that you need to do every single day in your life is for a moment, just become a visitor to your own life. Become an astronaut of wonder to your own life. And here's the question to help you become an astronaut of wonder. You have a question. Just go, what don't I know? What don't I know? Whenever you find yourself bored, like nothing's going to change, it's all the same, just go, what don't I know about what's happening right now? Like right now, what don't I know about this? You're like, oh, we're in a conference room, and we're having a conference, and there's this guy, right? What don't you know? Do you know who built this room? We can probably look up the architect, but you know, the construction workers. What's in this room? Maybe, was there this construction worker who just broke up with the love of his life? And he's never done this before in his life, but in that moment, he wrote a poem. And it was the greatest love poem humanity's ever seen. And he wrote it on the inside of these walls, and then they got covered up with plaster and paint. And we'll never see the greatest love poem ever. Probably not, but you don't know. Some pirates could have got in here some night and hidden a buried treasure. There could be a water slide to an underground lake with a pirate ship. You don't know. Probably not, but you don't know. What about all of you? Inside all of you right now is a heart that's beating that you're not in charge of. All of us are here right now because of something we're not in charge of. And if you spend a second thinking about that, it'll fill you with you. And inside you are also stories and experiences, feelings, secrets. I bet if we saw some of the secrets in this room, we'd be like, whoa, this room is a lot spicier than I thought, right? <laughs> yeah. What don't you know? I was working on a creative project, and I was paying attention to what I was saying, and I was frustrated. And I was doing this thing, and I said out loud, under my breath in a whisper, but I said out loud, I said, I'm never going to be a great artist. I was like, time out. I'm never going to be a great artist? Where did that come from? Well, there are some assumptions that build that argument. Look, I'm not formally trained as an artist. I've never, uh, uh, I've never won any awards as an artist. I've never made gobs of money as an artist. Things we usually equate success to. So I started developing a narrative that said, I'm never going to be great, whatever that means for me. I made a, I made a, I made a com commentary about where I thought I was going. So I was like, i got to change that. I don't need to become super egotistical and be like, I'm gonna be the greatest artist ever. Like we have Kanye for that, right? So, and I was like, I gotta change it. So I did this, I said, I'm on my way to being a great artist. I'm on my way. 
I'm on my way means if I fail at something, it's not evidence to the argument that I'm a failure. It just means I'm on my way. And I'm learning as I'm going. And I like to make jokes and things that have jokes in them. And so I made this t-shirt that said, Future Famous Dead Artist. Because I am in a tradition that typically when you've made it is after you've died. And that makes me laugh. I wear this as a bed shirt. When I wake up in the morning, <laughs> I wake up in the morning, I wash my face, see myself in the mirror, and I go, I'm on my way. Right? And that makes me giggle. But when I say that every day, it changes the trajectory of where I think I'm going. Because look, all our arguments are, are just assumptions put together. And if you can pull apart the assumptions that build an argument, it will open you up to a universe of all kinds of possibilities of argument. And look, lots of people have had to do this throughout their Oh, are we on? What? Hi! Oh! Hi, everybody. It's me, Scott from the past. Oh! Hi, Scott from the present. Uh, hey! How's it doing, everybody? Is it doing all right? Yeah. Sweet. Uh, how do you feel like you're doing? I think I'm doing pretty good. Feeling good? Uh-huh. Yeah. Did you, uh... Actually, yeah, I totally did. Yeah. I remember. Remember last time? It's yeah. not good. It's not no, it's not good. Well, uh, everybody wants you to paint, okay, so why don't do you, Scott in the present, do a painting. Okay. Why don't you go over there and do that? And I'll take over the narrative right now. Uh, so we're talking about the conversations that we tell ourselves, the narratives we have about ourselves, and those are trying to help us to survive, but guess what? They're not the truth of our lives, or the fullness of our lives, and we have no idea where our lives are going to go. That's the great mystery we're all invited into. In fact, one another great mystery that happens in our lives is the places that uh, don't work out end up being the places that form us the most. And our particular vulnerabilities sometimes become the way in which we give light to the world. So in true artist fashion here in my studio, uh, I'd like to show you some drawings and tell you a story. So let's do that. Once a great ship was built. It was strong, mighty, something to behold. And it was given a great purpose to deliver important seeds on the far side of the ocean. The ship celebrated its great purpose. It thought, how great of a task, I must be valuable. Look at this great purpose I was given. This is what I was meant to do. So it set sail. On its journey, an unforeseen storm came upon it. It thought it could handle it. It was sure it could handle it, but the storm was much bigger than it planned for. It couldn't control the situation. The ship was wiped out by the storm. It found itself wrecked on some rocks. It couldn't move. It couldn't go anywhere. The great ship was lost in the ocean. As it sat there for a long time, it sat with its failure. Its failure to fulfill its purpose. But something unforeseen happened. Slowly the water seeped into the seeds, and they began to germinate and grow. They grew and grew, and over time, there was a large forest. One day, another ship came passing by, also broken and floundering from an unforeseen storm. It came to the broken ship island and asked, May I rest here a while? I'm so tired from my journey. The great ship replied, Sure, by all means. As the new ship rested, the great ship gave some of its wood to build a shelter for the crew of the other ship. They stayed a while. After they rested and were healed, the new ship left renewed for its journey. Thank you for your hospitality. You really helped me. After a while, another ship came by. 
That ship also asked if it could rest for a while. It had been bruised and battered in the storm too, and needed a place to be. The great ship took some more of its wood and built another shelter for the much larger crew. When it was healed, it also went on its way. This kept happening. New ship after new ship kept coming, all injured by an unforeseen storm and needing a place to be for a while. The great ship realized that it had something to give, a place to rest, and solidarity from being wrecked as well by the unforeseen storms of the great sea. Pretty soon the great ship decided to build a lighthouse so that all ships passing by that way could find a place to be cared for, to rest, and then continue on their journeys. Throughout the years, the great ship cared for many, many broken and bruised ships. This was a quizzical mystery to the great ship. Out of its own wreckage and failure, it became a gift to others. It always wondered if this was the purpose all along. And so he's out there in his skinnies, just dancing with all his might as this ark is coming in. And then they wrote this down. They thought this story was so fun that they wrote this down. They said, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city, Michael, daughter of Saul, this is David's wife, watched from a window. When she saw the king leaping and dancing, she despised him in her heart. So here's the situation, the ark. A covenant, a symbol of a relationship with Yahweh, the creator, the giver, the giver of all things, the giver of existence. So a symbol of existence itself is coming into their midst. And there's somebody there dancing in front of existence. And there's somebody there despising the person who's dancing. How do we become people who know how to dance in the presence of existence? And then how do we become the people who despise those who figure out how to dance? So let's start with superheroes. Have you seen the latest superhero film? Do you notice I don't have to really give a title, right? Because we're in this crazy time where Hollywood figured out how to make billions off of comic books. And she's like, movie after movie after movie after movie. And they're fun and stuff like that. Um, I like them, but I was reading a book the other night and uh, a centaur was in it. I was reading it to my son and he's like, what's a centaur? And I was like, well, a centaur is weird because it's like half a human, half a horse. It's kind of, hey buddy, it's kind of like an ancient superhero. Like back then they didn't think about laser beams coming out of your eyes or cutlery out of your hands. They just said, what's big in the world? Horses, half a horse. You know? That's how they made superheroes. Like a minotaur, half a cow, a fawn, half a deer. It's just half of animals. Look it up. All the ancient superheroes, right? But it was like, uh, you know, yeah, it's an ancient superhero. But I don't know what its outfit looked like. I'm not sure, you know, because superheroes have outfits. I'm not sure what, like, the horse-human combination for wearing clothes is, you know? Like, one part is because centaurs have two rib cages. Right. Um, but, yeah, like, maybe 
that seems a lot, you know, that's, this is weird, but, like, what's this, you know, like, that, it just feels like an apron, you know, it's like, it's like a fanny pack to keep your keys, you know, what's that, um, yeah, I could go into this more, in fact, I have a longer bit, we don't have time for that, I just want to point out to you that from the beginning of human existence, come with me now, from the beginning of human existence, we have invented superhero stories. Earliest on, we invented superhero stories because all of us, as soon as we start walking down the path of our lives, we're going, we go, oh man, I have to be more. I have to be more. There's a path of success that we all want to walk down. It's different for all of us. You know this path of success. And as soon as you start walking down it, you're like, mm, I don't have what it takes. Uh, I'm not smart enough, I'm not skilled enough, I'm not educated enough, I don't talk right, I don't look right, my face isn't right, my body's not right. Uh, I, uh, and you just notice all the things that you aren't right, right? You know, you have these lists. You have these lists about what's keeping you from succeeding in that path. We all have these lists, right? And then what happens is that in our lives, we see other people who are kind of going the same direction, and we're like, whoa, how did you get so far ahead? How are you doing it? And what we want to do is we want to get out of our own path and we want to get in somebody else's path. And we start a conversation with comparison. We start a conversation with comparison. And look, I've had a secret comparison for years. For years I compared myself to somebody. And then I've been freed from it. Um, but I'm going to share it with you. My secret comparison for, for a long time was with hip-hop artist Kanye West. We talked about him earlier, Kanye West! It's because I met him one time. One time I met Kanye West. He, I met him at the Sasquatch Festival in Washington State. He just got done doing his graduation set, which is a great album. And I had backstage passes and was at the beer garden. And he came back, and people were like, pictures, pictures. They're like, me too. And I used to shave back then. It's like, me too, me too. And we took a picture together, and he was as excited as I was. And then that's it. That's the only time I've ever met Kanye. But I found out a little while later that Kanye and I are the exact same age. Our birthdays are just two months apart. And so when things, I know, I should be farther along, shouldn't I? But no, that's it. When things weren't going well in my life, I'd be like, man, I don't know if this is going to work out. Oh, I wonder what Kanye's doing. And I would look to Kanye to judge myself against. And I would see, oh, he's a fashionable man. He's got his own clothing line, a shoe line and stuff. He's very confident. He's very confident in the clothes that he wears. This is the most confident I've ever felt in clothes. You can tell by that power stance like I had it made, right? Kanye's a performer, he sells out concert halls and theaters worldwide and stuff. And I do some performing. Here's the six people that came to my show in Minnesota not too long ago. The picture's weird if you don't know what that's from. Yeah, it's a long story. Um, and then Kanye, uh, he says things on television, he's affecting culture, he's on TV all the time. I was on TV one time, I don't know if it affected culture, but it was pretty awesome. I was on The Crisis, right? Um, I was on The Crisis, right, with Bob Barker? Yeah. And look, it was really cool in 1999 to bleach your hair white. And that's not a puka shell necklace, it's a hemp necklace made by a girl in college I was into. Um, and uh, I had a great time. I was the showcase showdown winner. I won the whole show. I danced at the end with the Barker Beauties and stuff. Yeah, I did great. Bob Barker loved me. So maybe I beat Kanye there because all he's ever been on is Family Feud and it was a garbage episode. No, I've lived on your game show fantasies. I did it, I succeeded. I spun the wheel. Yeah, I spun the wheel. I got a 90. Wait, guess what I got? I got a 90 in my first spin, a nice day. And then I found my friend Alan in the audience, and I was like, guess what, Alan? 90. There you go. So, so maybe I beat Kanye there. But look, we all have some comparison that we have. And now social media, more than ever, is feeding that comparison. I'm not here to poo-poo social media. I'm here because of social media. Thank you for your support. But let's talk about how it's messing us up. Because it's messing us up in some ways. So let's talk about it. So say you want to get married. 
And a wedding nowadays is like a crazy thing to put on. There's so much ex expectation. You want to have a perfect Pinterest-worthy wedding, right? And so you have, need some ideas. So you go on Pinterest and you type in wedding ideas. And then this like catalog of bridesmaids dresses and floral arrangements and table settings and give, you know, invites and all that. Oh, so much and so much. But you're really organized and you're making all your boards and you're putting all together and you put it all, you have a notebook this big. You're organized and the day of your wedding comes and it is perfect. It's beautiful. It's Pinterest worthy or Pinterest worthy, except it's a little more human than it normally is. And nothing's really flowing that day. It's just all kind of all stuck up in there, right? Da, na, na, na. No, she looks beautiful. Na, 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 na. I've seen you, bridesmaids. Na, 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 na. Right? It doesn't work out. Or say you want to become a better cook. And you're like, I don't need to become, uh, like, make Thanksgiving dinner for my whole family. I'll just start with something easy like hot, dog and, hot dogs and cornbread. How hard can that be? Turns out, not as easy as you thought. <laughs> You didn't know they grew like that. Yes! And then say you want to travel. Oh, we've all seen pictures of some person in an exotic land, having an adventure, finding themselves, usually wearing a fedora. And you're like, I want to go on an adventure. I want to find myself. I'd like to own a fedora. And so you work hard. You save up your money. You travel for 37 hours by bus, boat, and train. And then you get to that place, and you're like, I'm here. And everybody else had the exact same idea. <laughs> if you travel, you're never alone. There's always somebody there. Because what's happening is every day we're given this curated reality. And all we can do every day is bring our very crowdy, messy, sweaty, selfie-taking reality. And it doesn't work. And because of our technology and our screens every day, we go, nope, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And we've been doing this long enough that we're starting to understand that it's making us anxious, it's making us depressed, it's making us not want to be here. Because the conclusion we're coming to is there's actually no way to find any success in my life by actually being me. And when you've come to that conclusion, you've entered a deeply sacred this conversation is in every faith tradition, but I will tell you a story from the one that I grew up with. And the one that's conference is based on. This is a painting of Peter and John. Their friend, Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. Their friend gets murdered, gets buried. Three days later, uh, their other friend goes to the tomb, it's empty. She comes back, tells them they're going to see if it's true. Now, John, in the white there, John wrote some books in the Bible, all bestseller, makes amazing royalty checks. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you've read some of his books. Um, uh, three of them are just kind of a, like for his own perspective, but one of them, he, he basically writes a spiritual memoir about his experience with Jesus. He writes himself uh, in the third person. He puts himself in the story as third person. And if you were to write a spiritual memoir about like kind of the most significant thing that happened to you, I'm guessing that you'd probably add a little humility in there. You'd be like, oh, and that person, they were just thankful to be there, or they were so grateful they just got to witness all the magic unfolding. Not John. Uh, in his book, he writes himself in as the disciple who Jesus loved. Very arrogant to write yourself in in your own book that way. But we'll come back to, to that later. Uh, Peter, though, we, know, we don't have time for an in-depth Bible study. You're welcome. But we know some highlights. He's a fisherman, becomes a fisher of men. He's very zealous. Then there's the arrest, the denials, the rooster crowing, crucifixion, resurrection, weird ghost stuff, ongoing fishing, miracle on the ocean, swimming in my underwear, breakfast on the beach, come and walk with me. Do you love me three times? 
Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? He's counteracting the three denials. He's restoring the relationship. And if you've ever been in a relationship that you messed up and that other person comes to you and works it out with you, you know that the way you respond is like, man, I'm like so embarrassed by what I did back there. It's like really been eating me up for weeks. I didn't know how to respond. I really blew it. And uh, I'm sorry. Like, I just didn't know what to say. Thank you for reaching out and working this out. Are we good? I want to be good. Are we cool? Are we doing this thing? I want to do this thing. Are we doing this thing? Right? That's how you would respond. That's not how Peter responds. And John writes about it in his book, okay? And in his book, he describes the scenario that after the walk, Jesus says, follow me. And then Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, he wrote that in his own book. He wrote that about himself in his own book. That the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And then Peter saw him and said, well, Lord, what about him? And then Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Look, it took me a really long time to understand that you can be a disciple of good news, whatever that is. But you can be the kind of disciple that's like, this is great. I love this. Having a great time. We're the best. And we win. Hey, quick question though. Um, What about them? Oh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, it's great, I love it. Hallelujah, glory, Maranatha, all the things. But um, no, really, like, no, really, seriously, what about them? I mean, like, do you, do you like them more than me? Because their life looks awesome. And honestly, like, my life really sucks right now. And I, from what I can see, we're doing the exact same thing. And... You can also be a follower of good news and go, I get it. I get what this is about. I'm the one that's loved. I'm the beloved. See, love. Love. Love wants to pour itself out into you. Love wants to pour itself out into you. But you can't receive that love if you secretly hate who love made you to be. Because this is the only container you've been given to receive love in. And if every day all you're trying to do is trade it out, that love is always going to fall flat. It will always fall flat. I ended up at a charismatic meeting one time, just one time. Look, I grew up Lutheran. Like, we never talked about the Holy Spirit. He's like a bad uncle that doesn't come to holidays anymore, you know? And I don't know if you've been to a charismatic meeting. It's very exciting. A lot of, like, flags, tambourines, jazz hands. It's great. I wasn't doing any of that. I was, like, in the back row, just like, what is happening? People were like, oh, would you like a tambourine? I'm like, no, I'm good, thanks. I'm just, just watching, just watching what's happening. And I was. I was just sitting there watching everything going on. And I was just looking around, and I noticed, I noticed, a, like, a man in the far back corner in the dark, who I can only describe as like a chubby Dwight Schrute from the office, just just like doing pirouettes to the Lord. You know, you know travel guy Rick Steves? It was like watching his tryout video, so for you think you can dance, you know? And it was hilarious. Like I was laughing so hard. Not outwardly, I'm not a monster. Inwardly, I was laughing so hard. Because it's really funny to see a chunky middle-aged man do moves that six-year-olds do at ballet class, right? 
Because he wasn't a stage person, because we've all seen stage people do stage things. It's the people in the far dark corner who really believe what they're doing. And I watched him for a long time, and I was like, <laughs> laughing. And then I got silent. And then I noticed I was jealous. And I was like, dude, how did you figure out how to be so comfortable in your own skin? Because I want to dance. I don't want to stand on the side and despise those who figured out how to dance. Like, just, you know, forget all this for a second. Let's just talk as people. We're in this really weird time, more than any other, other human beings ever. We're in this massive culture of comparison. Massive culture of comparison. Because of our technology and our screens, and we can, we can watch other people's lives unfolding every day. It's exciting. It's very interesting. But it's, we've been doing it long enough that we're seeing that it's making us anxious and depressed. It's making, making us not want to be here anymore. And we're trying to figure out how to use all this stuff. It's very new. Like we're, figure, we're having conversations in Silicon Valley and D.C., all this stuff. And we'll figure it out. We will. It's very new. But until then, we need some kind of practice to survive in this massive culture of comparison. And I started doing this thing that I just... If, there's just two practices I'm going to share with you today. You know, one is like... Becoming a visitor, unknowing the narrative. This one, here's the practice. Whenever you find yourself in a comparative narrative, just stop and move from comparison to contribution. Just stop and go, no, I'm a contribution. I am a contribution. I can be a contribution today. Because if what comparison is, is getting out of your own path and getting into somebody else's, because guess what? You do suck. You suck at being somebody else then what contribution is? It's the slow, daily work of uncovering the hidden path of desire that has been put in you to walk. Contribution is the slow, daily work of uncovering the hidden path of desire that has been put in you to walk. Have you ever had this experience in your life where you kind of look back over the years and you're like, I don't know, I feel like I'm on a path. And then presently it ends, and then future you're like, I have no idea, right? We've seen that path. Contribution is that slow daily work of uncovering the kind of path. And contribution doesn't necessarily mean making things, although that might be the evidence of the work you're doing. But contribution simply is your love catalyst. Your love catalyst. What do you love and why? What do you love and why? I love pizza. Pretty much like we all do, right? Because pizza is warmed up bread, sauce, and cheesecake. And you put it inside of yourself, and joy emanates out of you. You become like an Italian Care Bear. Just Care Bear staring at everybody like, Have you had it with prosciutto and spicy honey? Oh, it'll change your life! Right? And it's awesome. That's why we love pizza. But I love pizza too because my parents used to take my brother and I to a pizza parlor. And we'd sit and play like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at the arcade. And then we'd sit and eat together as a family. Eating pizza reminds me that I come from a family that loves me. Do you understand that that's the plot of the movie Ratatouille? And if Pixar knows it, we should know it too. So what do you love and why? We actually have... What do you love and why? There we go. What do you love and why? We, I forgot my... We actually have one word in our English language for what you love and why. And that word is gratitude. Gratitude. You've heard it a lot. Gratitude is what you love and why. And if you were to write down three what you love and why's every day, say in a gratitude journal, 
a number of things would happen to you. It's been proven by therapists, psychologists that it would do a few things. One, it improves your mental health. Two, it improves your physical health. Three, it improves your sleeping habits. And you're also doing something else. What you're doing is you're cataloging your loves. You're making a catalog of what you love. Because when the Kanye West of your life comes to you and is like, hey, do you want to trade lives with me? And you're like, it looks really fun with you and Kim in Wyoming. I kind of do. I don't know. Not really. But you would have to give up your whole catalog of loves. And if you make a larger, large enough catalog of loves, you go, no. No, Kanye, no. I don't want to. I don't want to. I've actually been given so, so much. I love this song by P.M. Dawn, hooked by Human League. I love it because it reminds me of my junior high crush, Lynn Marth, which never amounted to anything. But I love the feeling. Because to deeply love something is the best feeling of all. And to love is to desire, and to desire is to want to be here. And this song reminds me of what a joy it is to be here. My favorite smell is low tide. I love low tide. I grew up in a small Pacific Northwest beach town called Mukilteo, so the smell of salt and decayed seaweed was always around. And low tide is magical because it reveals a world that is mostly hidden. And to walk around the scattered kelp beds and rocks and crabs is to remember that what we see is not all that there is. I love rolled up socks in a drawer. I love plastic sandwich bags with or without sandwiches in them. I love a good rainstorm. I love the way my body feels after a long swim. Oh, and I love my body. Well, look, like I'm trying to, just like the rest of us, because I've been programmed to see it as not good enough for so long, mostly in speedo situations, that I forget what a joy it is to be incarnate in such a magical and biological masterpiece. Oh, and I actually remember this the most when I hugged my kids. Oh, I miss them. I remember when my daughter was like a little baby, and I was laying on the bed with her, and I heard the voice of God tell me that she was going to be a gift to the world. And when God tells you a secret, you don't, you don't ever forget that. I love church. Um, not necessarily what we've made it in North America. Like, there's a lot of fluff that can go away as far as I'm concerned. But here's what I love. I love what happens to my eyes, my ears, and my heart when I'm in the midst of a gathering. Like the poet Rilke has a poem that says, Where are we going on this glorious journey? To your house, of course. And I believe this poem the most when we gather in its holy name. So I love you, giver of my existence. Even I, though I have some deep questions about your invisibility and the suffering of this world, oh, and the absurdity of salmon migration, I see that you've given us the gift of existing. And admittingly, it's trying at times. Like there's a lot of loss. Don't get me wrong. There is a lot of loss. But what a gift to receive in a world to love and a cup to drink deeply from. So thank you for my life. This one with its never-ending dad tummy and its creaky 40-year-old knees and its proclivity to melancholiness. I'm an Enneagram 4, if you know what that means. I'm just glad to be alive. And we as your people, we want to dance in your presence. So come and come and dance with me. Not because it's a religious thing to do, but it's something that lovers can't be stopped from doing.
I think like this. There we go. That's it. <laughs>